0: That idea that we just sang from Psalm 19, I mean, is that how you think of the law of the Lord? I mean, it's not how I used to think of the law of the Lord, the Torah, the especially Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, do you look at that section of Scripture and think to yourself that uh, it's sweeter that it, what does it say? Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I mean, is that how you think of the law of the Lord? That's how David thought of the law of the Lord. I think that's how we should think of the law of the Lord, especially given what we know as the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. But even, even before that, the law is an incredibly gracious story. It is all about The love and the mercy and the grace of God. And you say, Wes, Wes, how can you say that, right? I mean, it's about this angry God who is like killing people and sacrifices. And you got to make sacrifices to keep this angry God happy. You know, when I sit down and I really read the Bible, that's not at all what I read. That that's that. If you take a few verses, it might kind of sound like that. But when you read the story, and again, as I've been encouraging you to do, sit down and read a whole book at a time. And I I know that's incredibly difficult to do, and, and I haven't done it until recently with some of these bigger books. But I'll tell you, uh, last couple of weeks I've sat down and read in in just a few hours. Sat down read Genesis. Sat down read the next week Exodus. And it takes a while to get through it. A few hours, you know, but man, it's worth it, and to really hear the story that's being told there. In fact, when you think about that, you might think about uh, the flood, and you think about the flood story and how people became increasingly wicked and God wiped out mankind except for one family. Do you remember why the text says that, they, uh, that, that God finally gave up and just wiped the land clean? The thoughts and the intentions of their heart were... Wicked and evil all the time, right? Now, after the flood, look at Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. It says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I mean, wait a second. I mean, does that seem like it goes together in your mind? Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Why? Because man is evil even from his youth. Do you see the, the act of mercy and pity there? God says from this point forward, I'm going to bear with them. It's not that they deserve to be bared with, bore with. No, I don't know. They don't deserve to have me be long-suffering towards them and patient towards them, but I'm going to be. I'm going I'm to bear with them. I'm going to set in motion a plan to redeem them and reconcile them to myself. And I will never, ever destroy the world again because of man's sin, because man is wicked even from his youth. And it's not, I mean, it's not that they can't help it. It's, it's just that they're weak, isn't it? I mean, as Paul moves into the New Testament, Paul continually uses the metaphor of the flesh. And I think that's what Paul means when he talks about, the Greek word is sarx, flesh. When he talks about our fleshly nature, he's saying we are corruptible and we are weak and we are susceptible to sin. And God says that God looks at mankind and he says, even from their youth, they're wicked. Their thoughts, their intentions are evil. But because of that, and because I am who I am, I will bear with them and I won't destroy the world again because of their sin. Now, We've been talking about the book of Leviticus and talking about this holy God that we serve. And really, this passage in Genesis 8 ties to that, doesn't it? Because it's all part of the same plan that God says, I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to figure out a way for me and mankind to be reconciled together and to be in covenant relationship with each other. I'm going to figure out a way for us to be married together. But but that's hard because I'm a holy God and they are a fleshly people. And so we need people to meditate, to mediate between the two of us. We need some way for us to be reconciled. And ultimately, we know that that's Jesus. He comes to mediate as the ultimate high priest and to offer one sacrifice to reconcile God and man. But in order to get us to that point, so that we can understand that sacrifice when it happens, so that we can understand what's going on, so that we can understand the grand scheme of things that this patient God says, I'm going to put up with you until I can take your old heart out and put a new heart in. I'm going to put up with you until I can transform you and recreate you and reconcile you to myself. I've got a plan, and part of that plan is this living parable of the Levitical system, this sacrificial system of how I'm going to reconcile you to myself and live in covenant relationship with you. And so Leviticus is all about God calling a a group of unclean people to himself so that he can make them clean and make them holy so that they can dwell with him in covenant. Now here, we've been talking about the outline that we got from the Bible project, um, ritual, priesthood, purity, Okay. Three sections, uh, repeated, ritual, priesthood, purity, and kind of in a symmetrical pattern and right in the middle, the Day of Atonement that we talked about last time. So this, this evening I want to focus on chapters 1 through 7 and talk about some of the ritual sacrifices and offerings um, and just kind of trace one theme through that section. That's maybe what we'll do each week is kind of look at one theme in each of these sections Now, when we think of sacrifices and offerings, we usually limit that to sin, don't we? And in fact, I would say that we tend to think of it like pagans. We tend to think of sacrifices like pagans. You remember the story in, in 1st Kings when, when Elijah and the prophets of Baal are on Mount Carmel and they're, they're kind of having a a showdown, remember? And there's two altars and, and the, the priests of Baal, they, they've got the sacrifice there and they're praying for fire to come down and Elijah's like, you know, he's, he's kind of, you know, Toying with them just a little bit. I, I love a little bit of sarcasm. It's cool. You know, and so he's saying, you know, why don't you shout louder? Maybe he's on vacation or maybe he's in the bathroom. You know, he'll yell a little bit louder. And so they're yelling louder. And they're even cutting themselves. Right? Do we tend to think about the sacrificial system that way? Like I'm offering a sacrifice to make God love me. I'm offering a sacrifice so that this angry God won't be angry with me anymore. I'm offering a sacrifice so that this God will love me. That's paganism. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not Yahweh. In fact, Everything about the sacrificial system is built upon and built around the character of God. The graciousness, the long suffering, the patience, the mercy of God. Look at Exodus chapter 34, uh, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, And gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for, look at the word, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, stop right there for just a second. That thought about who God is shapes everything in the Torah. Everything in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it shapes that. Do you see how it even shapes later prophets that are to come? Most of the prophets are like, hey, look, remember, this is who God is. But you even have prophets like Jonah. You remember Jonah? And his big problem with God was that this was true of God. You remember? He says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I don't really want to go to Nineveh. I'd rather go in the opposite direction. And God says, I don't care what you want. You're going to go to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh and he preaches to them. And the people repent. And God says, cool, you know, we're good right now. And I'm not going to destroy you like I said I was going to, like I warned you that I was going to, because I don't want to destroy you. I want to be patient with you. I, I love you. And yes, I know you're the capital of the worst empire in the world and you're Assyrians and pretty soon you're going to wipe out my people, but I love you too. And Jonah said, see, I knew this is what was going to happen. This is why I didn't want to come here in the first place, because I know what kind of God you are. You are a God that is merciful and gracious And slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I knew that's the kind of God you were. And I knew that if they turned around and repented that you were going to have mercy on them because that's the kind of God you are. Is that the kind of God you picture in the Old Testament? Because I'm afraid that sometimes we don't know this story the way we're supposed to because that's not the God we're picturing we're not picturing a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you don't get that, then you won't get the sacrificial system. If you don't get that, then you won't get the Book of Leviticus. I, I recently was at a conference with a, a well-known uh, denominational preacher that's pretty well known in the country, and um, and he was doing a conference about you know different stuff, but he threw in some theology stuff, and you know it really bothered me what he had to say about the Old Testament. And he essentially encouraged people just stay away from it because our God is kind of a different God. A lot of people have struggled with that over the years. But it's because they don't know the story. And when you don't know the story of how Jesus is the culmination Jesus is the climax of a story of a God who has always been merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you don't understand that that's the God of the Old Testament, then you won't understand that that's still the God in the New Testament because he's the same God who sent his son in flesh to die upon the cross and you won't understand the story of the Bible, you won't understand the gospel, but this is who our God is, and this is what the sacrificial system was all about. And you said, but Wes, you didn't finish it. It says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Well, first of all, would we want to serve a God who didn't punish the guilty? I mean, would we really want to serve a God and put all of our trust in Him and say, I know I can trust you with my future. And I know I can trust you when my enemies are stronger than me. And I know I can trust you no matter what happens because you just let everybody off the hook. Right? That's not the kind of God we serve. We serve a God who will deal out justice. But but do you see what it says? It says that He keeps steadfast love for thousands. But there are times when He has to punish the guilty. And he very well, when he drives people into exile, he very well may keep them there for, I don't know, three or four generations. And then what? (laughs) He says, come home. Come home. Because I love you. Do you see? You see, his mercy is for thousands. And his forgiveness is so abundant. And yes, there are times when he has to punish. And there's going to be times when he has to punish Israel. And he has to drive them out. And for three or four generations, they're going to have to be away from him. But he forgives, and he washes away iniquity, and he says, come home. And isn't that, isn't that what the whole Bible is about? Isn't that what the gospel is about? Isn't that what this story right here in Leviticus is all about? So God is a God who knows our weakness. He says, I know. I know from, from the time you're a kid, you're wicked and you're evil. I know. I know. I know that even when you try to do what's right and you try to do what's good and you try not to do the things that are bad, I know you still mess up. And instead of wiping you out and saying, I'm done with you, I'm going to set in a place, set in place, set in motion a plan to not only bring you to myself in the meantime, but to change you and transform you in this life and in the life to come, Right? And these sacrifices and offerings that the people made in the book of Leviticus that God is telling them about, they are twofold. They're not just about sin. Do we realize that? Do you see the offering that Moses, or Moses huh, Noah made? It's like the old joke, you know, how many of each animal did Moses put on the ark? None, because it was Noah. You know, so I'm um, sorry. Anyway, um, I just get really silly on Sunday nights. I don't, it's because it's a class and not a sermon. Um, so... When Noah offers the sacrifice, it's not about sin, right? I mean, it's it's about gratitude. And a lot of the, the sacrifices and the rituals in, in Leviticus are not about, please forgive me. They're about, oh God, you've been so good to me. Oh, you've done so much for me. A lot of it is a direct response to God's graciousness and God's kindness, and God's mercy. So much to say, I love you so much, God, I don't know what to do, but to take something that's mine and sacrifice it to you, because you are just so good. And so Leviticus explains, if you want to do that, here's, here's how you do that, because God is so, so incredibly good. And, and others that are about sin, they are also a response to God's character of graciousness and, and patience to say, I want to maintain this relationship of grace and mercy. It's not, please love me, please forgive me. It's, you've already shown yourself to be a God who loves and forgives. And on that basis, I offer to you what you've asked me to offer to you to make atonement for the sins that I've committed because I already know that you're a God who loves and forgives, and shows mercy, and shows steadfast love for thousands. The sacrificial system presupposes God's character and his people's faith and love for him. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. The sacrificial system presupposes God's character of graciousness and forgiveness, and it presupposes that the people offering these sacrifices are people who have put their faith in him and love him. Now, when we follow the story even further, and we see the people continuing to offer up sacrifices, even though they really don't love God, even though they're perverting justice, even though they're mistreating people and they're being violent and they're acting like the Gentile nations, they make a mockery out of the sacrificial system, right? The sacrificial system is not there to say, hey, God, even though I do all these bad stuff, will you please forgive me? Or I can trick you into loving me and forgiving me because uh, all, after all, I'm offering these sacrifices, that's what it is to honor him with your lips, but your heart is far from him. You pervert and make a mockery out of the system when it isn't based on God's character of mercy and love and grace and on your response of faith and love for the God who saves. Everything even comes out of the Exodus event, doesn't it? Because you're a God who delivered us out of, out of slavery... This is what we offer back to you to maintain our relationship of grace and mercy and also to thank you for our relationship of grace and mercy. And, and when their hearts became changed, corrupted, so that it wasn't that anymore, it made a mockery out of the sacrifices. And God eventually gets to the point where he says, stop, stop it. I don't care. It's not that I'm just like devouring. I'm not some pagan god who just loves to lick up blood and, you know, eat these. This isn't my food. I don't need your sacrifices. What I want from you is for you to see me for who I am and to care about maintaining this relationship. But if you're perverting justice, and you're acting evil and wicked, but offering up sacrifices and thinking that that's going to maintain our covenant relationship, that's just ridiculous. And I won't stand for it. And God does punish the guilty. How is it that he says, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth Generations. Okay, now let's look at Leviticus chapter 4 and let's trace kind of one theme. As I was reading through this, one word really stuck out to me. And I thought, that's kind of worth exploring and kind of thinking about for just a little bit this evening. Leviticus 4 and verse 2, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he's committed, a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Now, a couple things. One, do you notice the unintentionality of the sin there in verse 2? He says, if somebody sins unintentionally, and in this case, he goes on to specify, if it's a priest who sins, this is how the priest is to take care of that. Does unintentional sin still bring guilt upon the individual and upon the people? Yeah, absolutely. It brings guilt upon them. I mean, doesn't sin do that? Doesn't sin affect everything? Whether it's intentional or not, it affects everything. You're affected by other people's unintentional sin. I'm affected by your unintentional sin. You're affected by my unintentional sin. We're affected by the world's unintentional sin. It it still brings guilt and shame and corruption and darkness. But this is the system set up to deal with those unintentional sins. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, as a group, you do the wrong thing. And the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done. And they realize their guilt when the sin which they've committed becomes known. The assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. I mean, what do you do when you've sinned and somebody says, hey, do you know that was wrong? What you guys did the other day, that was wrong. If it was unintentional, and again, we'll kind of define that just a little bit in a second, but if it was unintentional, you say, oh, man, I blew it. The last thing in the world I'd want is for my relationship or our relationship with God to be damaged or severed, and so I'm going to do everything I can to maintain that good relationship and that covenant of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, when a leader sins... Doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish. Then chapter 4, verses 27-28. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female, without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. Now again, I know that when you're reading through this and you're just trying to get through your reading for the day, it's kind of monotonous, isn't it? And you're like, okay, didn't I just read that? I mean, it sounds like the same thing over and over again. But do you see the difference? He says, listen, if it's a priest who sinned unintentionally, verse 3, if it's the whole congregation who sinned unintentionally, verse 13, if it's a leader, if it's one of your leaders... Verse 22 that sins unintentionally, or if it's just one of the common people, just one of, one of you sins unintentionally, verse 27. Here's the way that you deal with that unintentional sin. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Unintentional sin, right? What, what is that? What is that? Look at Numbers chapter 15, verses 29 through 31. Numbers 15, 29 through 31. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So either way, whether you're a foreigner or you're a native Israelite, if you're living here and you sin unintentionally, here's how we're going to take care of that. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native Or a sojourner reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. We often say there aren't different kinds of sins. All sins are the same. I I don't know that I necessarily agree with that anymore. There's definitely a distinction here made, isn't there? There's a distinction between what it calls unintentional sins and high-handed sins. And we understand that almost intuitively, don't we? We understand that there is a big difference between somebody who makes a mistake, and that, that may take different forms, how they made that mistake, and you know what they knew before they made the mistake, but they're honestly trying to do the right thing. You know, they're trying to, to be God's person. And the person who says, I can do whatever I want to do. I don't care what's right. I don't care what's wrong. I'm going to take what I want to take. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to eat what I want to eat. I'm going to go where I want to go. I don't care about the rules. And can you imagine if God had put in place a system that said... Okay, either way, whether you meant to or you didn't mean to or whether it was intentional or unintentional or whether it was high-handed, arrogant, presumptuous, it doesn't matter. You know, just offer a sacrifice. That would make a mockery out of the whole system, wouldn't it? Because again, the sacrificial system presupposes that you know who God is that he is a holy God who saved you out of slavery to make you his holy people. And in response to him, even though he knows that you're you're wicked from your youth and you're going to make mistakes, he knows that. He set in place a system so that you could maintain, continually maintain, a good relationship of covenant peace and love and forgiveness. See, sometimes we often say, well, it was impossible to keep the old law. Kind of, yeah, that's true. And kind of, no, not so much, that's not true. Now, is it possible to keep it perfectly? Well, because of our the weakness of our flesh, and God knew that about us. He knew we we're going to sin unintentionally. We're going to try to do the right things. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. He's talking about life under the law. And he's saying, when I, when I try to do the good thing that I know I should do, I don't do that. And I, and I try not to do the things I know I shouldn't do. And I do the very thing I don't want to do. Who's going to save me from this situation? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. Right? That's the answer. That's who's going to save us from that situation. But was it possible to maintain a relationship with God under the Old Testament system? Yes! God was a good God and he just wanted his people to dwell with him. But of course it was pointing forward to a better system. Because as we said last week, all the sacrifices continue to stack up because unintentional or not, sacrifices are still being offered and there's still this continual reminder that something is still broken And something needs to come. Someone needs to come and deal with this. But at the end of the day, if somebody says, I don't care who God is. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. There can be no place in God's covenant people for such a person. Can there? Can can God have a relationship with somebody who is rebellious, and as the text says, high-handed? No, they will be cut off. Look at Psalm 19 as we started. I I know it's not on the the screen, but but if you got your Bible, Psalm 19, that's where I want to close. And again, think about... Think about this psalm from the context of what we're talking about. The psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, the creation itself is preaching a sermon, isn't it? The creation itself is singing a song. The daytime and the nighttime, the heavens, the stars, the moon, and the sun, they're preaching a sermon about how great our God is. There, There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom. That's the morning time, isn't it? The sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy across the sky. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And the psalmist is saying all of this is preaching a sermon of how great and glorious our God is. And then he kind of switches gears and he says, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, is sure rather, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And isn't that true? Even for a Jew living under the Mosaic law, can't you see that for somebody who wants nothing else than to have a relationship, to be in covenant relationship with the God who made all of this, And who picked out a slave people and said, you slave people that I'm saving out of Egyptian slavery and I'm bringing this mighty empire to their knees and I'm saving you and I want to dwell with you and I want my house to be in your tent. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people for the king of that people to say, I want nothing more than to stay in relationship with this God. And in that context, he says the law of the Lord is perfect. Why? Because it revives my soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. I know what my God wants from me. I know how he wants me to live and how he wants me to treat my neighbor, how he wants me to treat my enemy, how he wants me to treat my wife, how he wants me to live my life. I know what he wants, and it, it it's refreshing to know. Who my God is and how to stay in relationship with him. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. You see, there's a big difference between a threat and a warning, isn't there? And we tend to read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as a threat. Do this or you're going to die. And it's not a threat, it's a warning. It's saying, I love you too much to let you die. I love you too much to let you be cut off. I love you too much to see you on a path of self-destruction. And I'm warning you right now that if you don't live this way, if you don't come into my covenant presence, if you don't come into relationship with me, you will die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you've got to be in relationship with me. He warns them not to walk in a different way. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? You have perfect discernment about what you have done and you haven't done. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I've blown it. I don't even know how I've blown it. I've done things that I'm sure I've messed up and I don't even know how I've messed up. But that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what this whole system was all about. And even under the Mosaic law, you're forgiven, right? You're forgiven. You're washed. You're cleansed. All those things that you shouldn't have done. And you're like, man, there's so many rules. God, how am I going to keep them all? Just, just trust me and follow me and try and walk by faith and all those hidden things that you, you messed up on. Forgiven, right? That's what he's asking for. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant, though, from presumptuous sins. Don't let me commit high-handed sins where I say, I don't care what you want me to do. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then he ends by saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And now our high priest has come and offered himself as a sacrifice so that we can forever be cleansed of all of our unintentional sins. And you say, well, what about my intentional sins? We repent, right? And even those things in God's graciousness, even the things when we were high and we said, I don't care what you want, even those things can be treated. As, as unintentional sins, if we're willing to repent. That's the story of the whole Bible. But if you persist intentionally in disobedience, and this is, I keep coming back to Hebrews chapter 10, 26, and following. And he says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he says, anybody that set aside the law of Moses died under the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Do you see? That passage in Exodus that God is this loving, gracious God, but he will by no means clear the guilty, that's the story of the Bible. He is both. He is a God that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God but He's a God who wants more than anything in the world. He wants so much a covenant relationship with you and to save you from self-destruction that He gave His only begotten Son, that everything that you've done and messed up on and all of your weakness, it's forgiven. It's like it never happened. And if you walk in the light as He is in the light, you walk by faith, you walk by the Spirit of God, you are justified. Oh, isn't that good? Let's live that way. Let's pray. Father, we have one prayer tonight. We ask, Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that's been poured out for us through Jesus. Thank you for his intercession. Thank you that he is our mediator. And Father, we pray that you keep us back from presumptuous sins and forgive us of all the things that we've done. Lord, you are so good to us and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.